Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Previously on Deep Cover. Ned Timmons was finally getting somewhere. His big breakthrough came in the spring of 1985 when Clinton Shine Anderson flipped. Shine was in charge of vetting everyone in this smuggling network. I knew it was a massive operation, and I knew that we, you know, had the key to the safety deposit box to open it all up. Shine pointed Ned to a spot on the North Carolina coast where he said his bosses had smuggled marijuana into the country. So Ned picked up the phone and called the FBI down in Wilmington, North Carolina, asked them if they have any intel on drug smugglers who were using shrimp boats. They tell him, yeah, actually, we had this one case in particular involving an abandoned drug boat, a ghost ship. Ned quickly begins to realize that so many of the answers he's seeking about the ghost ship, the smugglers, their system, are right in Beaufort, North Carolina, perfectly camouflaged in the underbrush. Well, we're heading out of Beaufort right now. We're actually going Highway 70 East. It's about a 20-minute ride to Back Creek, 15, 20-minute ride. So, yeah, you'll get to see a little bit of the country. That's Carl Cannon, Jr., He's a big, strapping guy with this epic beard. The word swashbuckling suits him well. Carl's a local guy, born and bred in Beaufort. He's showing me around the area. Now, if you can picture a map of the United States, we're on this little marshy spit of land that sticks out from North Carolina into the Atlantic Ocean. This whole area is just a tangle of overlapping inlets and waterways, a giant aquatic maze, really. This is where Ned and Shine came back in the 1980s. It was just one of many trips they took together across the country to gather evidence. 
I went down to Beaufort to retrace their steps. So as you can tell, like I say, the stuff's getting dense. You see all these little canals that come up in these little areas. This is North River to our right. We're headed to Back Creek, to the very spot where the ghost ship was supposed to unload its cargo, if everything had gone according to plan. You know, as you can see now, the trees are starting to thicken, uh, which is pretty typical for most of our country roads and areas, you know, inland and coastal. You're basically going to cross several places that are basically wide open, either swamps or wooded swamps, uh, much like you have in Everglades. The little road that we're driving on, it eventually ends at the water's edge. I think that's a baby eagle. Sounds like it. Carl and I get out and walk along the shore for a bit. The vegetation is dense, insanely thick. Carl starts pointing down the shore at what looks like just another clump of overgrown bushes. They would have come up through the canal, which is the the darker set of trees. You can't see the entrance because it kind of disappears. I can't I can't see it at all from here. No, it's just I can tell by the by the line of the woods where it's at, where the opening is. But you can if you kind of see a drop and then another drop. That drop is where that creek is. As I looked out on this vast, watery expanse, I started to get it, started to see it. Here you had a spot with enough boat traffic that a decent-sized ship would not attract attention. But then you also had a maze of coves and inlets where that same boat could suddenly disappear. It was perfectly concealed, invisible really. Clearly, someone knew what they were doing. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover. Episode 4, The Gentleman Smuggler. There are a few things to know about my local guide, Carl. First off, he has a not-so-secret identity. My name be Captain Carl Cannon, Jr. I portray Blackbeard. Uh, yep. Carl is a pirate reenactor. Now, Fiddler's Green is a place I've heard tell Where old pirates go when they don't go to hell Where the girls are all pretty and the beer is all free and there's bottles of rum hanging from every tree. Wrap me up in meeple skins and jumpers. Carl volunteers at the local museum. He became Blackbeard because he had the one major job requirement, his beard. It was long, kind of dangling down his chest. He was already braiding it, too. People would tell him, hey, you look like Blackbeard. And then came the job opening. Because the former Blackbeard um, kind of might have a fall from grace, so to speak, and he was dismissed by the museum. Fall from grace? What do you mean? He was doing some things that wasn't thought to be quite family-friendly appropriate. You might say that he was had a side job that, that he was performing as Blackbeard in a funny kind of, you know, um, adult manner. He was doing adult parties. 
Carl is kind of the mascot of Beaufort, North Carolina, because the place now sells itself as Pirate Town, USA. On every other storefront, you'll see a skull and crossbones, the Jolly Roger flag. But Carl is not just some random reenactor. His family has lived here for generations, and he says that the ghost ship wound up here precisely because of this pirate legacy. And these pirates, they tended to come and go depending on the boom and bust cycle of the local fishing economy. Carl remembers how, after a few bad shrimp seasons, some fresh faces showed up in town. Some of the drug cartel folks came in and just gently started asking questions around some of the fish market and boat owners and then encouraged them to get their friends to come together and basically they present it to them. Around town, they had secret meetings. It was all word of mouth. My dad was made an offer the same way. One of his friends came to him and he said, I've got a deal for you. Dad had bought a boat in 74, had mostly paid it off, but as all commercial fishermen find out, a couple hard seasons, you need a new engine or something happens. They offered my dad if he would come make a certain amount of runs for him, run out and meet a mothership, come back and go up into the bays and unload um, away from prying eyes. Carl says his dad, he never went to any of these meetings, never took the offer, but a lot of people that Carl knew did. So, you know, the temptation was there, and they knew and they knew the temptation was there, that they could offer to pay someone's boat off. You know, when three months, your boat's paid for, and you'll never see us again. So this is Pirate Town, USA, a place where pirates and smugglers have been plying their trade for, well, centuries. And this only made me wonder more. What exactly went wrong with the ghost ship? If these smugglers were such pros, and this setting was so perfect, what the hell happened? Why was the ship abandoned with 29,000 pounds of drugs in the hold? To find out, I visited Doug McCullough, who at the time was the first assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of North Carolina. He still lives in Beaufort. We met down at the harbor just as a storm was coming in. Got some wind up here. Looks like there's some weather coming in here. So where are we? We're, we're standing in Beaufort, downtown Beaufort. Doug points out to the spot where the ghost ship first appeared on the horizon as it was coming in from sea. And there was another boat with it, too, a small skiff, almost like a guideboat, leading it in. They came through this narrow passageway known as Beaufort Inlet, and Doug kind of points it out to me in the distance. And there's something else that Doug wants to show me. As you and I look out, there's an island right in front of us and then over the top of that island you can see a big flagpole with the american flag and that's at the u.s coast guard station that station was here back in 82. in fact that night two coast guardmen known as coasties noticed the shrimper and the little guideboat coming in through the inlet and both vessels appeared to be drifting out of the channel they were just a bit off course so the coasties went out to investigate first they pull up alongside the little guideboat and in it they see someone who is clearly not a fisherman. He was dressed for a disco. This is the 80s, remember, Saturday Night Fever. Flared pants, he had a shirt that was uh, silk and it was open to his sternum. He had gold chains, he had the stacked heel shoes, and um, all, all these are items you don't wear on a, an open boat in Carteret County. The Coasties knew something wasn't right. Eventually, they decide they want to check out the shrimp boat, too. 
It had since pulled up alongside a nearby fuel dock. So one of the Coasties boards the shrimp boat and makes a move to go down below deck. He said he was gonna inspect the hold and that's when he heard a shotgun rack around. It makes a very distinctive chunk sound. And anybody who's ever been around a gun has heard that sound will recognize it immediately. The Coasties back away and go to get help. A short while later, the police show up. The shrimp boat's still there, but its crew has fled. From the outside, it, was, it had its uh, nets and it had the boom and, and the other accoutrements that you would expect on a shrimper. It's only when you got inside that you saw things that didn't match. All that remained was the cargo, 29,000 pounds of pot. They had a few early leads, names that turned out to be bogus, all dead ends. The story made headlines, in part because the feds had almost nothing on the ship, except that it was there. What was uh, like a ghost uh, was the fact that we didn't get any people at that time. You know, everybody got away. It was a very frustrating investigation because the case just sat on the shelf. For almost three years. All the law enforcement agencies just kind of moved on, and we were all uh, just in a state of waiting until uh, Ned Timmons contacted the nearest FBI office to Wilmington, and he says, I've got the witness you're gonna need. And that witness was Shine. If we had to turn one person, this is the guy we wanted. So after Ned calls down to the Wilmington office, Ned and Shine make their trip down to North Carolina. They meet with Doug McCullough, but that's not all. Shine also takes Ned on a little swamp tour to a hidden cabin that the smugglers used. They just left it. They just, there's all, still mattresses all over and coffee and stale food. And they, they just got the hell out of there. And whoever owned the cabin never came back either. So far, Shine's story was checking out. And Ned was slowly building his case. We're out in the swamp. We're identifying where they stayed, where they rented cars, the hotels they stayed in, motels, any tracks that we can establish evidence that that these specific people were there. Shine explains that everything, every last detail, was orchestrated by the syndicate's master smuggler, a guy who went by the name Skip. He says this Skip character, he was so sure of himself that just six months after the ghost ship was captured, he tried it again dared to pull off the exact same operation. Same route, same offloading site, used another shrimp boat, only bigger this time. And it worked. Basically, Shine explains, while you guys were scratching your heads over the mystery of the ghost ship, we doubled down and slipped another shipment right under your noses. Skip was so confident of his system, of the camouflage that he had created, that he was unfazed by the loss of a single ship. So, not a fiasco, but a tiny glitch in the system. They'd steered a bad course into the harbor, and they'd let a guy on board who shouldn't have been there. Remember the guy in the disco outfit? Yeah, him. It's a mistake they wouldn't make again, because Skip, he was a perfectionist. Coming up after the break, I tracked down the legendary Skip. Turns out, his real name is Stephen Kalish, and he lives in a beautiful mansion in Hawaii.
I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. So I'm in my rental car heading out to the house of Stephen Kalish, who back in the 80s was a master smuggler, the guy sneaking in tons and tons of marijuana into the U.S. Looking for a big house with a red roof. Oh, wow. That's got to be it. That's beautiful. That is a big house with a red roof. Eventually, I pull into this big gate, you know, one of those imposing things with a keypad on the side, so I punch in the code that Stephen texted me. And well, there it goes. Gate is opening. Okay, the kingdom has opened. I pull up to the house. It's this mansion with a perfect view of the Pacific. I mean, imagine the last scene in the Hollywood movie where the hero lands well, very well. This is the place. So I get out of the car. And I see him, Skip, a.k.a. Stephen Kalish. Hi, I'm. <laughs> good to see you. Hi, good to see you. How are you? Good. And I got to tell you, at 67, he's this really handsome guy with a perfect tan and a ponytail and a trim, muscular physique. And almost right away, he takes me to the stables on his estate because, well, he's got to feed his horses. RTB nice. Stephen starts preparing their meal, which starts off simply enough. So this is flaxseed for their coats. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever seen someone feed horses, but I can promise you that's not what's going on here. I see Stephen mix at least half a dozen different pretty obscure seeming ingredients. With such precision, it's like I'm watching a world-class pharmacist prepare a highly complicated drug. And then this is organic sea kelp, which has uh, minerals in it. This is Bokashi, it's organic. It's made here on the island. It's like a probiotic. And they get this in the morning and the evening. I feed them about 7.15 in the morning and about 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, just watching you feed your horses gives me a little bit of sense of your organizational uh, <laughs> nature. I like things to be in their place. It makes life easier. Yeah. Did you have some version of that philosophy when you were running your, your smuggling business? Oh, 100%. It was all about being organized and having plans in place and backup plans and backup plans. Always, always, always. As we walk through the stables, Stephen explains to me that there is a very deliberate feeding sequence based on where the horses are in the pecking order. Archie's number one. Dane is number two. Sonoma's number three. Guy Guy, our quarter horse, is number four. How do, how do you see that pecking order like? They figure it out. Do you think that's true of people too, to some extent, or? Well, yeah, there is. I mean, some people are natural barn leaders, and some people are, are not. I was a natural, I was a born leader. Growing up, uh, I was always the leader of the neighborhood kids. I had a paper route from the time I was 12 years old to about 15, and I had the neighborhood kids working for me. Later, when he was in high school, he made headlines when he organized a protest in front of the state capitol in Austin. His cause? Marijuana. In a newspaper article that I found, Stephen is identified as the leader of the, quote, beautiful people's republic, and he makes the case for decriminalization. Meanwhile, back at home, his father, an arch-conservative, wasn't too happy. His dad was a heavy drinker who sometimes beat him. Stephen ran away to California for a time, taking and selling LSD, but he eventually came back to Texas and re-enrolled in high school. He lived with some friends. To support himself, he started selling pot and found out he was good at it. And he was even better at teaching others how to follow his lead. Basically, I started buying a few pounds of pot and breaking it up and then letting my friends sell it to their friends. So while still in high school, he created his own multi-level marketing scheme, the way Avon sells perfume, only it's weed. Eventually the market grew and I was buying more pot than um, selling more pot. I finished my junior year at Bel Air High School and by that time I was making a couple thousand dollars a month. Stephen eventually expands his efforts, begins smuggling larger quantities of weed in from Mexico, across the Rio Grande. And then he ups his game again. He teams up with some Colombians and starts using shrimp boats to bring in even bigger loads to a small marina in Texas. At this point, he's in his late 20s. And then, in 1979, a guy at the marina they were using turned out to be an informant. So, Stephen gets indicted and is facing a four-year sentence 
He was out on a federal appeal bond when he made the biggest decision of his life. I got some fake ID together. I got a birth certificate of a deceased person and got a passport in the name of Thomas Franklin and flew down to the Cayman Islands. And he just pretty much vanished, making himself a fugitive. In the coming years, law enforcement occasionally got wind of this guy who went by so many different names. Mr. Franklin, Frank William Brown, Stephen Sloan, and simply Skip. And this Skip character, he flickered on and off the radar of law enforcement like a UFO. And with time, he became kind of a legend. People called him the Gentleman Smuggler. Roy Fruget, the detective down in Louisiana who had investigated one of Skip's ships, he heard about him. They said he never wore a gun, that he was not violent, that he was really smart, really organized, very intelligent, good with the ladies. If he had been in the military, he'd probably be a general. I mean, he's a good organizer. He had a really professional army of drug smugglers that he was supervising. And as it turns out, around this time, the FBI was also getting interested in this Skip character. We heard this name Skip, and apparently we realized that Skip was a pretty, pretty much a shaker and a mover in the organization. That's Stan Jacobson, an FBI agent down in Tampa, who'd been on Skip's trail for some time. Skip's name kept coming up in various drug investigations, but he was a master at eluding the authorities, beginning with that nickname. It's very frustrating because you, you, know, you go to have a major player, and I'm sure there are a lot of people named Skip in the country, so, you know, trying to find out who that was because he maintained a pretty low profile. I mean, this guy, uh, he wasn't out there like, you know, like a mafia don uh, who sometimes like to like the sound of their own press. He may have kept a low profile, been anonymous, but they knew that he was no ordinary smuggler. We weren't dealing with someone who robbed the bank and, you know, with a, with a note. We were dealing with a major operator. Uh, if he had been in a major U.S. corporation, he'd have probably been a CEO. Stephen Kalish had become almost invisible, which was basically his entire business model, staying under the radar, making sure everything was unseen. He didn't hire speedboats to make deliveries or get planes to drop bales from the sky. For a fishing village like Beaufort, North Carolina, he leased shrimp trawlers, and just motored right up to the offload site. He had his own crew, but he also used locals, the folks that felt most at home there and had the right vibe. Guys like Bobby Webb, a local Vietnam vet who was looking for work. Vietnam did something to me, you know, where you got adrenaline and, you, you know, you, you live with adrenaline, and it kind of changes you. It makes you take chances that you wouldn't take before. Bobby was a gunner in Vietnam on a small 50-foot aluminum vessel known as a swift boat. Ran it 24 hours a day, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And by the time that Skip met him, he was still jonesing for that adrenaline. Oh, yeah, excitement. Because, you know, you were on that boat, we had two 50-caliber machine guns, a 50-caliber on this side, a 50-caliber on, on this side, and sometimes an M16 in the wheelhouse, and we always had two M14s. 
shooting those guns, with, you know, one of us had to run the boat while the other shoot the damn guns. Shooting this side and running that side. What's that feel like? Oh, it's nothing like it when you're doing it. Nothing like it. Bobby was the perfect guy for the job. A gutsy dude with the resume of a modern-day pirate. It makes sense why Stephen would want guys like this. I mean, why not go right to the folks who'd hunted and fished this land for generations? The guys who may have been the very descendants of Blackbeard's own men. Bobby remembers being approached by a guy who worked for Skip. Skip had an army of advanced men. He used them kind of like a movie director would use a location scout. They traveled the country looking for possible sites. One of them reached out to Bobby. He called me up, just, you know, shoot the bull. He said, Bobby, you know any place uh, some of us boys could unload some pot? <laughs> I says, oh, yeah. Once Stephen committed to a given location, he began managing every aspect of the operation. In Beaufort, he began by studying road maps and topographical maps. His guys measured the depths of the water along the inlet, he moved his security team down to the area months before a load would come in, just to do reconnaissance. He set up a safe house just for him and the top brass in the organization. He had his guys tail the local police, study the patterns of where they patrolled and when. They monitored parking lots, which might serve as staging grounds for large-scale police raids. And he listened to everything. We would monitor all the police frequencies, Coast Guard frequencies, we would buy a variety of speedboats, depending on the area we were operating in. We would have boats that we could use to evacuate crew members or offload personnel in case of an emergency. Over the next couple of years, it got to be very precision and very military-oriented. Eventually, Stevens started using airplanes. He had a Cessna 210 lookout plane which he used to make sure that his boats weren't being tailed by a Coast Guard cutter or a Navy boat. And as for his own smuggling ship, he customized it. I mean, I outfitted the boat so it wouldn't be detected from the Coast Guard overflights that they were making at this point using infrared technology to detect heat signatures in the holds of shrimp boats. So to avoid that, we installed refrigeration units on our shrimp boats. One thing that Stephen says he didn't do is arm himself. Said he was a pacifist at heart and that usually neither he nor his men carried guns. It's a little hard to imagine, right? I mean, all these guys, all this marijuana, and no one is armed? For Stephen, the no guns thing, it was all part of his philosophy. You know, being the gentleman smuggler, a consummate professional. He even took all of his employees and their significant others on a company cruise, as if everything he was up to was totally legit. By July of 1984, Stephen was poised to pull off his biggest feat yet. He'd smuggle one million pounds of marijuana in a single load. There was just one problem. More on that when we come back after the break. I'm surrounded by feds, and they say, Stephen Kalish, you're under arrest. find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. 
This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Just to give you a sense of how much one million pounds of weed is, in Colorado, where weed is now totally legal, that's more than they sell in an entire year. Stephen Kalish planned to smuggle it right up the Mississippi River and unload it at an old turkey farm in Missouri. He'd have 25 tractor trailers on standby. 25. And to unload it quickly, Stephen would have to invent a new machine. He actually had a conveyor system custom made that he paid $300,000 for. Oh yeah, it was my pride and joy. Stephen gave the operation a special code name. Operation America's Heartland. Because we were bringing the barge up through the port of New Orleans, up the Mississippi River, all the way up to St. Louis, headed east in the Missouri River into America's Heartland, in the middle of Missouri, into a thousand-acre turkey farm that I'd leased. America's Heartland, I thought it was a perfect name for my last op. His last op. But isn't that what they always say? Yeah. His last op. He could quit any time he wanted. But if he did quit this time, he'd retire a very wealthy man. There'd be about $160 million in profits. But he knew that the feds were snooping around. He'd been tipped off. One of his planes, a Learjet, he heard it was being watched. So he told his guys, put it away, hide it in a hangar. We can't even risk going near it. Stephen was used to living like this. He'd been a fugitive for years. But he was worried, so worried in fact, that he'd begun to move all of his assets to a secret location in another country, where he had a home and a whole other life lined up. He was ready to leave the U.S. for good, 
there was just one last thing he had to do. I had to go to Tampa to get my files and my documents out of my Tampa house and close it down. That was his safe house, and his documents were still there. His address book, some floppy disks, and those disks, they contained a lot of logistical information about America's heartland, including names and job assignments of folks involved. Stephen was nervous not having all of this with him. It was a loose end, and Stephen, he didn't like loose ends. So he flew to Florida to go to his safe house, and when Stephen landed, it's about 1.30 in the morning. He looks out the window, and he freaked, because there on the tarmac was his Learjet just sitting there. I'm still pissed off. I mean, it was like totally unnecessary. There was no reason to pull that jet out of the hangar. Because we knew there was heat on it. You know, we just knew there was heat somewhere. But he sees that no one's there. The coast is clear. So he grabs a car and heads to the safe house to close it down. The next day, he drives back to the airport in his Bronco with two of his guys and drops them off with instructions. Tell the pilots to fly all of the jets out of Tampa right away. Because if the jets are hot, you know, he doesn't want them anywhere near him. The logic here is kind of kooky because by going back to the airport, he's right there alongside the jets. But you gotta remember, Stephen has a lot on his plate at this moment. And he likes to micromanage everything. We park about a mile away or a half mile away, and I wait in the Bronco. So I'm sitting out in the Bronco after about 20 minutes. Just enough time that Stephen's spidey senses start tingling. And then he knows, time to go. He's got to just slip away. So he gets out of the Bronco. When I start walking away, knowing something's up, and I get about, I don't know, a quarter mile away, not even that, and I'm surrounded by feds. And they say, Stephen Kalish, you're under arrest. And I said, who? I said, my name's Frank Brown. I said, dear, here's my driver's license. And they go, no, we know who you are. And I go, nope. And they go, well, you're under arrest. I said, okay, fine. Well, they arrest me and they take me to their headquarters. He's taken to the FBI offices in Tampa. As Stephen walks into a room, he can see up on a big board the names of various suspects and their connections. He takes one look at the board and he realizes this investigation, it's made very little progress. They don't know anything about our smuggling operation and they're trying to figure out who's who. Stephen searched the board for his own name. He didn't see Stephen Kalish up there. What he does see is Skip. And he realized these guys they haven't put two and two together. They don't know that he is Skip. All they seem to know is that they've arrested some fugitive named Stephen Kalish, who skipped town a few years ago in Texas. They don't seem to get that they had the master smuggler right there. So he tells the cops. I have nothing to say to you guys. Take me to jail. So they take me to Hillsborough County Jail. What is your emotion that first night or two in jail? Well, Partially relief. Relief, because Stephen Kalish, the small-time drug dealer, was happy to take the rap in order to protect Skip, the global smuggling entrepreneur. And was there a chance that you would talk at that point? No. No, there was... 
the story was way too big for the feds. I mean, literally, it was, this is something, you know, the guys in, on the task force just, these guys couldn't even comprehend the story. And so, Stephen goes to jail, starts serving those four years for the charges in Texas, the ones he skipped out on. He ends up at a medium security prison in Texas, and he's prepared to do his time. Operation America's Heartland, it's on ice for now. Unbeknownst to Stephen, another story was unfolding up in Michigan. Clinton Shine Anderson had become the FBI's star informant. He was talking, revealing all the details of who Stephen Kalish really was and how he operated. So, this would mean trouble for Stephen. Meanwhile, Stephen starts hearing chatter that the feds are making progress in their case against him. He had been hoping to get released to a low-security camp outside the prison. But now, the feds said no. They were apparently worried that he might run for it. And they were right to worry. Because Stephen, he was a planner. And long ago, he had anticipated being in this exact situation. I had a serious escape plan. Oh, I had one before I ever got arrested. So, friend of mine's brother had ran a special forces team. I put him on a $100,000 retainer to come and rescue me no matter where I was. So, after I got arrested and I was in Texarkana, I had his brother come visit me. And I said, okay, I think it's time that we need to look at how we're going to get me out of here. So they did a recon of the prison facility, and his brother came back to visit me. He said, okay, we're ready. Um, they can get you out. They were coming in with a helicopter to pick me up off the wreck yard. But there's only one catch. problem was their guard towers with guards with rifles in them. They couldn't guarantee that one of the guards wouldn't be killed if they opened fire on the helicopter. They can't guarantee there won't be any loss of life. And this leaves Stephen Kalish, the gentleman smuggler and avowed pacifist, in a bit of a quandary. Freedom is within his grasp, as long as he doesn't mind getting some blood on his hands. Kalish's arrest is a massive setback for the smugglers, but it's not a death blow. And this is essentially what Ned learns. There's someone else at the top of the syndicate, a kingpin, a longtime money launderer, a guy with deep ties to the suppliers in Colombia. And this guy, he's safe, living down in the Cayman Islands, untouchable. Next time, on Deep Cover, Ned travels down to the Caymans and finds the kingpin. The stress is unbelievable. The, the mental stress, you don't sleep. You're worried about your door getting kicked in any minute. You have no weapons down there. You have no backup. You're, you're not going to be able to hit the radio and call 911. You're not, you're not going to be able to call for help because nobody's coming.
Deep Cover is produced by Jacob Smith and edited by Karen Chikurji. Our story editor is Jack Hitt. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra, and Flawn Williams is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Mia Lobel is Pushkin's executive producer. Ned's novel is read by Walton Goggins. Special thanks to Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Lital Malad, Maya Koenig, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Khadija Holland, Zoe Gwen, and Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin Industries. Special thanks also to Jeff Singer at Stowaway Entertainment. Additional thanks to Terry Peters and to Doug McCullough, author of Sea of Greed, which tells the story of his investigation in North Carolina. I'm Jake Halpern. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.